Good morning, everyone. So good to be with you today <clears throat> at church. My name is Matthew, and I'm the lead pastor here at Emmanuel, and I'm just so grateful this morning for the church and to be together in this space with you. Um, I have a couple of things that are kind of family business to talk about, and but then we'll jump into the text. But I, um, the first is, is, I think, pretty good news, and that is that this week the CDC released new guidelines for masks, and um, we saw them too, uh, and, uh, and they're good. And so we are uh, gathering with those who've been advising us and also as a leadership team, and we'll be communicating this week to y'all just what, what our plans are going to be going forward, but hopefully it's going to be very, very soon, and we'll start to see faces, whole faces again. And that is uh, truly good news. Um, okay, and then also, uh, maybe a bit more serious, um, we have a wonderful problem right now, and that is that we have more kids than we know uh, what to do with. And um, we, uh, so I'm here basically, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll cut to the chase. We're here to ask for people to serve in kids. Now, uh, at Emmanuel, kids volunteers are not babysitters. And, and we really do believe and we program and structure our, our, our ministry in such a way that we, we really do believe that whether you're holding an infant or you're teaching a fifth grader the, the Bible or anything in between there, that you are a part of helping this child be rooted and established in God's larger story for their life. And, um, and we need people to, to be a part of that. One of the things that we commit to when we baptize children here, and you know this if you've been here, uh, is that there's a part of the liturgy from the prayer book in which after uh, the parents who are putting forward their child say all these promises and, and things, I then look at you all and say, are you going to be in this with this family? Because otherwise we're just basically like, good job, good luck, see you later. But we actually recognize that we need one another in order to fulfill even the vows that we make at baptism, and will you play a part of that? And, and most of you uh, say, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, here, I'm here to do that. And that's not in any way to be heavy-handed. I think it's actually to, to celebrate how beautiful the church is in a moment in which we are, tend to be more individualistic and self-interested, that the church says, no, we're going to be a community that holds each other up and, and does this with one another. Now, here's uh, some of you like numbers. Here's numbers. Um, we have currently at Emmanuel 200 roughly members. These are people who joined last year when we became our own church, particularly to become Emmanuel. Um, most of the members come to this, this come to church. Um, that's not everyone who comes to our church. We have 300 to 350 sort of like regular Sunday morning, which is about 65% of what we were at pre-COVID, which is the national average in case you're curious. Um, of those 200 members, 55% of you are already serving in some capacity in this uh, on Sunday mornings or throughout the week, and we're super grateful for you, and you can just chill out. And, and But if you are a part of that 45%, I want to just encourage you um, to recognize that you are needed and that part of what it means for us to be members of one another is to actually commit to life with one another. And if you're not a member, you can serve too, actually. Uh, we would be happy uh, to have you serve. Because while our adult numbers have remained about 65% of pre-COVID, our kid numbers are surprisingly right back at the pre-COVID numbers, and um, which means that we have more of a need out there and fewer resources in here to address that need. So if you are feeling in any way tugged or a desire to serve in this incredibly significant ministry, 
here's how you can do it. On our website, emmanuelatl.org slash volunteer, you can go there. You can even go there right now. It's okay. You can be on your phone for a moment. And, and it's just, all it is is just you raising your hand. It's not a blood oath. We're not going to track you down, but it's just like, okay, I actually might be interested in this. I like little kids. I like medium kids. Uh, I like grande kids, whatever. Um, then it's just you kind of putting your hand up, and, and then our, our wonderful kids pastor, Becky, will be in touch with you shortly to, uh, to help, um, yeah, to help us out. All right, let's jump into the text. Matthew is my name, but we're reading from Luke. Uh, sorry. <laughs> it's like a Yoda moment. Um, <clears throat> we're going to finish up Luke's Sermon on the Plain this morning, beginning in verse 41 of Luke chapter 6. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, friend, let me take out the speck in your eye when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns or grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. That one is like a man building a house who dug deeply and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the river burst against the house, but it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the river burst against it, immediately it fell. And great was the ruin of that house. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are in the final week of the church year before Lent. Lent is that great season of preparation where we get ready for Easter. Easter, the even greater season on the other side of Lent, a 50-day feasting season. And to get ready for 50 days of feasting, we take 40 days of preparation in which we fast, we repent of our sins, we reconcile with one another, we prepare for baptism. Now, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, a tradition that is, uh, was new to me to, to learn about, but is very beautiful, their last Sunday before Lent, they call it Forgiveness Sunday. And it comes from this idea that comes out of the teachings of Jesus, that before we can go to God to be reconciled with God, we first must be reconciled with one another, because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men your trespasses, your heavenly Father will not forgive your trespasses. A very serious uh, teaching. And therefore, it recognizes before we enter into a season of repentance, we must first be willing to forgive and reconcile with those who have harmed us. Leaning on the wisdom of our siblings, therefore, from the tradition in the Orthodox Church, Forgiveness Sunday is a call on you and me to have clean relationships going into Wednesday's Ash Wednesday service. And forgiveness and reconciliation is not a thing that we do super well in today's world. It's kind of a, a pretty sharp word for us. And that's because, um, well, it's because of a lot of things. But I'd say maybe sociologically why it is, is because in, in what feels like the last 50 years, so like almost like in my lifetime, we have essentially, 
as a society shifted from a guilt-based society to a shame-oriented society, shame-based society. And this is a fascinating trend, but it's happened, I mean, I think globalization is to, is to blame and all sorts of stuff. Now, when we talk about honor-shame societies, we're not inventors of this. They are the most established, rooted, and ancient peoples in the world function as honor-shame societies. The most of the global south, the far east, the near east, for example. And the difference between a guilt-based and, an, and a shame-based has to do with how is a person made restitution for a wrongdoing or what, what are the consequences of wrongdoing. In a shame-based society, the consequences are exclusion. They're relational. Or the way that we have turned it, framed it, cancel, to be canceled. And this is what happens now in the West. Now, the difference between our society and, say, the, the Far East, which has a far more established understanding of honor and shame, is that we have a really rudimentary baby-like kindergarten understanding of this, which means that we have no clear understanding of how a person is restored or reconciled once they've been canceled, which is, of course, what we see. When a person does a certain wrong thing, once they've crossed a certain line, they're done. The end. And so when we talk about reconciliation and, and restoration and forgiveness, we are essentially talking about a thing that we don't know how to do very well right now. There's not a clear way towards reconciliation. In fact, it is not hard to find, if you go out and look for it this week, to find many outspoken, younger, influential people who are saying that forgiveness in itself is actually a tool of oppression because it tends to fall on the shoulders of the oppressed it's used against victims, and therefore demanding forgiveness or requiring forgiveness is actually a device that the white patriarchal hegemony uses in order to keep people in line. And they may have some good points about that, but what they don't, what you can't do is be a person who's walking in the way of Jesus and be like, I don't forgive people. I don't reconcile with people. Martin Luther King wrote, he who is devoid of power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. We can never say, I will forgive you, but I won't have anything to do with you. Forgiveness means reconciliation and coming together. So it's not even like, I forgive them, but I literally will never talk to that person again. Martin Luther King says, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness without a movement towards restoration is a contradiction in terms. To refuse to begin the work of a reforged relationship is oftentimes just a subtle and passive-aggressive form of revenge. Um, now, just to be super clear, uh, when we talk about reconciliation, I am recognizing and saying that 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 is an un-nuanced statement and that there's a lot of nuance to what causes breaks and disruptions in people's relationships. And some people have experienced such toxicity, such abuse, such violence, that the idea of being restored to that person feels like maybe in the kingdom, but not on this earth. And I just want to acknowledge that that's a real thing. And honestly, how you possibly move towards a person who has so brutally harmed you is something that you need community around you to help you figure out what is wisdom, what's the way of Jesus. And, and I think that that's just another call for why we need to be doing this with one another and not just sort of running off on our own and trying to figure out how to, how to walk in the way of Jesus. But a lot of times when we talk about forgiveness and reconciliation, we're not talking about those sort of deep scars. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we're just talking about grudges that we're holding people that have done things that have made us angry. And Forgiveness Sunday is a reminder to you and me that the way of Jesus is always a way of canceling debts. And so to, to speak super practically, one of the ways that some of us need to get ready for, for Ash Wednesday is we need to make phone calls this week and let people off the hook that we've been holding hostage in our hearts and our minds for a long time. 
We also need to understand that sometimes people do things and they aren't sins against us. They're just things we don't like, we don't agree with. And we have to release people from that. Your parents are not sinning against you by being Republicans. Okay? There's a, there are, there, when, we, when we don't agree with someone's ideology, that's not violence against you. Now, I totally understand, and I really do, that when we have a community that we feel the need to advocate for, and we feel like certain policies and ideas harm that community, that that's something we feel passionate about, and that's good. But when we are unwilling to see the humanity of another person because of their ideas, that makes us an ideologue, not a human being. And the way of Jesus always invites us to look past the ideas and to see the person. You can love a person and even accept them without agreeing with them, without even understanding why they are the way they are. Thanks be to God, people are willing to do that with me. And so we have to be willing, I think, in this preparation for the season of Lent, to be willing to understand that, that God is calling us. He's calling us to, to let go of debts, to, to be jubilee people as as Jenny and I have been talking about in tomorrow's podcast, or I guess today's podcast, uh, we'll talk about, to be a jubilee people. Miroslav Wolf, the creation theologian, says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I ex- exclude myself from the community of sinners. And so in Jesus' teaching today, I think what he does is he actually shows us how to rightly place ourselves in the community of sinners and how to therefore be able to understand other people in the community of humans. And those are not mutually exclusive, <laughs> exclusive communities. They're the same community. Um, and, and yeah, it, it helps us, I think, to recognize first how we need to be forgiven so that we can begin to move towards other people with that same forgiveness. So Jesus gives us three parables, three images in this text, and we're just going to go through them one at a time pretty quickly. Each one of these is a different facet to how we understand our own need for forgiveness, which hopefully will enable us and galvanize us towards being a reconciling people. So the first is this. Jesus talks about the log in the eye, and the big idea, we have to address our own faults first. Obviously, it's a very humorous picture of a person nitpicking the splinter in another person's eye while a large beam of wood is coming out of their eye. It's intentionally ridiculous. It's also fairly obvious what Jesus is talking about. He says, you need to be willing to deal with your own stuff before you become a nitpicker of other people's issues that they should be dealing with. And we say that that seems nice and, and kind of good. But I love like sort of the even deeper level of what Jesus is talking about because he says, when you have something in your eye, you can't even see your other person the other person rightly. In other words, the thing that you think you might be rightly nitpicking might not actually be a problem at all. Like you, until we're willing to deal with the character issues in ourselves, we don't even have an accurate understanding of other people. We're blind to what other people actually might need to work on if we are unwilling to first work on our own stuff. Now, this is not the same thing as sort of a relativistic response, which is to say, I tell you what, I won't, I'll just ignore your problems Uh, And then I'll just ignore my problems, and we can just do that. That would be okay, right? Now, that's comfortable (laughs) and um, and certainly easy, um, but it's not loving. Because to love someone, uh, and even to love yourself, is to will the best and the good of that person. And it is ultimately the reason why Jesus, Jesus does not say, you have no business looking at other people's problems. He says, you have no business being an unrepentant person who hasn't addressed their own character weaknesses, who then goes around and, and, and moralizes the world. But he does say, do this first, and then you'll be able to love your neighbor. You'll be able to help your neighbor. In other words, in Jesus' imagination, 
Love involves us being willing to look at one another and say hard things to one another in the belief that God is at work in that person and that that person receives the same grace as me, that person has the same access to the Spirit as me, and, and so on. So it's not this sort of like relativistic, like wash over, nothing really matters, I, you're okay, I'm okay, blah, blah, blah. Um, one of the things that we've done in our, in our day and age is we have conflated acceptance with love. We've said they're the same thing. Y'all, acceptance is not love. Now, I don't think you can love a person until you accept them. But God accepts me as I am, but doesn't leave me where I am. Desire is more for me. That's what love is. Because oftentimes, the splinters in my eye or the logs in my eye are not only harming me, they certainly are, they're harming my entire human community. The reason why God loves me and my community enough to not let me stay where I am in my brokenness is because he wants more for me and for the people whose lives I'm constantly touching. And the, the vision that Jesus has here is of people who are willing to take responsibility for their own things, but then who in turn are able to, in love and with goodwill and intentions, help one another in community towards their own wholeness and health. That's one facet of this. There's another facet of this, which is people in here, and I have no people in mind, just to be super clear, who find it easy to nitpick other people, find it easy to immediately draw out the faults in other people. And oftentimes, those people tend to think, if this person would just live their life in the same way as me, if they would have just made the same investments as me, if they would just have the same health regimen as me, if they would have just disciplined their kids the same way as me, if they, whatever it is, then their life would go a lot better better for, uh, for them. To be clear, I am not one of these people, but I know they exist because I've been around people for a long time. And um, I just want to say, if that's you, if you find it easy to see splinters, you know, if you, see, if you find it easy to access the things in people's nature that probably could afford to be, you know, tweaked on, or here's a book you might want to read, or here's a TED Talk you really should see, um, Jesus' teaching here is a red light on your dashboard to say, maybe you're not seeing as clearly as you think you are. Maybe you're not being as helpful as you want to be. Maybe you have things within yourself that actually need to be addressed before you become the person who sees what everyone else needs to change around you. The second thing, or second picture Jesus gives is of a good tree. His idea is that our actions are the fruit. They're not the root. Um... Jesus' understanding in this, I think, was, a, was ahead of his time, and yet it continues to map onto modern psychology, which is essentially the idea, uh, what I mean by that, that um, we, there's a whole lot of things that you and I do that we don't choose. They just, like, come out of us. There's a whole lot of who we are that isn't willed. Now, there are certainly parts of our life that is willed. We all know that. We all know that feeling of, like, I could do this or I could do that. And, like, you choose the good thing. You're like, I'm a good person. You know, but then every once in a while, and maybe uh, recently it's not every once in a while, but it's more like constantly, um, something leaks out, like a thought that you would never say out loud, but then it, you do say it out loud, or a thing you do a thing, and you're like, I would never do this, but then I, but then I do, then I did it this time, and w when that happens, we say, oh, it was a moment of weakness. It was, it was out of character. Uh, it's really, it's almost like we're saying, um, for a moment, I was possessed by the devil and something happened in me that doesn't, that wouldn't normally come out of me. And Jesus says, no, you're right. That is a moment of weakness. But the weakness wasn't that something foreign came out of you. It was that your filter, which usually keeps these things inside, the, the holes got too big and something came out. And so what happens to me when I get tired, when I'm running late, 
when I feel overextended or anxious, what, what is going on in me uh, when I'm sick or when something in my life, even a small thing or a big thing, feels out of my control? As, as one person I've heard uh, some, uh, someone say, uh, you know, what juice comes out of me when I'm squeezed, which is gross, but, you know, like what is it, what is it that emerges from me naturally? Um, we do this, people do this with racism. They'll say something racist and then they'll get caught and then what do they always say? I'm not racist. What they should say, according to Jesus, is I'm more racist than I realized, and this has been evidence to me that I have a long way to go. That's actually what Jesus is inviting us into. It's not shame. It's actually like accepting and then moving forward into health. But Jesus wants you and me to understand that those things that are coming out of us, like those aren't accidents or mistakes. They're indicators of stuff that he's essentially, Jesus is helping us to discern what are the logs in my eyes? What are the deep character issues that I need to be working on? And when I discover these things, God's grace is never moving me towards shame, but always towards health. There is always on the other side of, of, of awareness, self-awareness, grace. That's what's always available. So Jesus gives this image. He says, you need to understand that the things that you're seeing and doing, these are, in fact, <laughs> these, these are the fruit of what is true about you, not the root. Um, Lenten fasting, I think, is a really great way um, to begin to identify some of these things. And that is because when we fast during Lent, what we're doing, and, and just to be super clear, like I, I, Lenten fasting is not, a, it's not a white knuckle, it's not a marathon, it's not proving to yourself that you can do more than you thought. That is, it's actually discovering how weak you are and how controlled you are. That's actually the point of Lenten fasting, because when you take away the things that you and I have been using as coping mechanisms, especially during the last two years of pandemic, what we will discover is that actually there's way more unhealth in us than we knew. We've just been dulling it and tamping it down with coping mechanisms. But you start taking away those things. You don't drink alcohol. You remove sugar and sweet or if you're more of a savory person, you take out cheese fries or whatever it is. You get off social media as a way of escaping. You don't therapeutically shop anymore when things get out of control. You take these things out of your life and you'll discover what? These things don't address the logs in our eyes. They just, they, they, they light them up. They help us to see, oh, there is a lot more going on in me um, than, I, than I realized. And just learning to sit in that discomfort and anxiety is an opportunity for the Spirit to do deep work in us. Finally, Jesus gives the image of an enduring house. He offers us a stable life. The final parable is of two different kinds of houses, one built on a stable foundation, one built on an unstable foundation. Houses built on unstable foundations are great houses until something happens, which is why the operative word in this text is so important. Jesus says the word, when. When the storm comes, when the river floods, when the dam breaks and bangs against the house. Not if. Jesus in this has a very realistic analysis of life that it will be full of hardships. Most of us know that in this room, especially anyone who's older, that life is going to disappoint you in ways you can't foresee. It's going to cost you in ways you would never imagine and that there is nothing you can do about that. It's just going to happen. And when it does, the question is, what happens to your house? What happens to you? Um, many of you know, unless you're new here, you may not know this, but many of you are aware that for the last at least seven months, my family's been going through something that has tested the fiber of us in ways I wouldn't have foreseen. 
uh, never could have imagined and has been far more painful than anything I would say we've ever gone through. And I still have so little ability to talk about it openly because it's not my story to tell. It's one of my kids' stories, and maybe one day they'll be able to tell it. But having it happen beginning in August, uh, at, the, at really sort of the tail end of two years of trying to lead this church through a pandemic, um, I am not proud to say that like, um, my house, my metaphorical house, has not weathered this storm as much as I'd hoped it, it could. Now, to be clear, because some of you probably are immediately like your Enneagram 2s, you're like, wait a second. Uh, I have grace for myself, okay? Uh, I have grace for myself. I also have grace for anyone else in this room who has truly struggled through these last couple years to just feel like you could keep going. And I've talked to you enough of you to know that that's a lot of us. Um, I do have grace for myself in ways that I'm strong as I'd like, but also know deep in my bones that it is possible that I could be standing up here today saying, I have walked in the way of Jesus these last two years and it's been incredibly hard, but Jesus has supported me the whole time. But I can't say that. What I can say is that I've lost countless hours doom scrolling. I can say that for every step towards God, there's also always been some sort of side excuse that I could find for why the way of Jesus was too much for me to walk in and giving me permission to sort of punch out once again. And because of that, my life over the last two years, but the seven months in particular, has been a sort of start-stop, one step forward, two steps back. And based on the number of conversations I've had with folks in this room and then outside this room, I don't think I'm alone in that. That there's been a sense in which this has cost us in ways that we don't know how to endure. What's ironic about it is that the people who I know who have actually just continued to walk closely to Jesus on a day-by-day basis, who haven't just given up endlessly to their appetites, are today able to say, no, I actually have had enough, and I've actually had extra to give to the people around me. Whereas most of the people that I'm talking to and the people I'm reading online would say the exact opposite. I myself have felt like I'm drowning most days, and I have zero extra for anyone in my life. Jesus is offering to you and me a stable life. When he says, this is what it's like when a person follows my teachings. When the storm comes, they stand up. But the person who doesn't follow my teachings, who doesn't walk in my way of life, who doesn't follow me as their rabbi, when the storm comes, they get toppled over. And everywhere I look right now, here, Twitter, everywhere, I see toppled over houses. Jesus calls us to a life of self-examination, to repentance, to holiness, forgiveness of others. Many of us are convinced that these are too high a calling when we're going through something as hard as what we're going through. And maybe that's true. But I wonder how many of us have tried I can say unequivocally that the seasons or the stretches of my life in the last two years where I have stayed close to my rabbi have actually been the times where I have found that I have what I need to make it through the day with peace, without caving to whatever you know, sort of thing feels like it's, it's the only way forward. And I've managed to have enough for the people in my life in the process. Maybe the reason why so many of us are cynical right now is not because we're finally wise to the ways of the world, but because we are trying to do this on our own and Jesus has never intended for us to do this on our own. Friends, we have to figure out how to endure 
how to be stable enough to weather storms. Our world is not getting easier to live in. From all sides, on all continents, things are getting harder. And we have actually become incredibly privileged and I would say pampered. And as a result, we are the opposite of that Chinese missionary who said that what God wants from us is soft hearts and hard feet. But instead, what we have is a culture of people with hard hearts and soft feet, easily touchy, fragile, triggered, and unable to endure the hardship that comes inevitably in every life, and that God invites us in the middle of that hardship to be a house that can weather. And the great thing about being a house that can weather the storm is not only are you still standing, but you now have shelter for other people to come and be under. That what God's vision for us is actually that we would become homes in which other people can find refuge. But when we ourselves are constantly running around and looking for refuge ourselves, we cannot be that person. And so I just want to close with an invitation from Jesus. He says in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, Come to me, all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.